The following audio is from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com. I'm going to just go back with you a little bit this morning and kind of review again where chapter 1 is, and we're going to go in a little bit into chapter 2 of the book of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love to have you open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1 again. Uh, you know, before I start, I, I heard this statement made a couple of weeks ago by the pastor who followed me down at my church in Phoenix, and he said this, and I, I really agree with him. He said, we expect God to do the impossible, right? I mean, can't he do the impossible? But on the flip side, does God expect us to do the possible? I think so. And in this case, with Nehemiah, I want to approach this passage again by looking at what Nehemiah did to do the possible in order to succeed in his ministry to rebuild the walls. Because when you think about this whole task of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, they had been sitting there trying to get rebuilt for 142 years. This was a long time. And not only was it an impossible task, not only to think about the rebuilding of the walls, but just to get all the people on the same page to get it done, right? And then to get permission from the king to do it, and knowing that there'd be opposition. So he makes an incredible request of God. And in that request, I want you to notice his approach. He also makes a great request, obviously, to the king. And he has an approach there as well. And I'm hoping that what we'll glean from this particular study this morning is that each one of us will understand that there is a better approach sometimes to God. And we may see God do some even more impossible things than ever before. So Nehemiah chapter 1. Again, let's read through that and uh, let's remind ourselves of where we're at. In the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel, of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in a great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some, some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the Lord God of heaven. And then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess there's, there's sin. We Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands and decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. He reminds the Lord of his ability to protect and provide for his people. And in verse 10, he says, They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed. By your great strength and mighty hand, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of, this, of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was the cupbearer of the king. Well, in the month of Nisan... In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. 
Well, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Well, the king said to me, What is it you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Well, then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, Well, how long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel? By the temple for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. Can you believe this? What an awesome opportunity for Nehemiah to have his faith stretched. And maybe this morning I'm hoping that I can stretch your faith a little bit, knowing that God can do the impossible in your life, but maybe our approach has been a little bit off. What was Nehemiah's approach? Well, number one, if you read verses 4 through 7 again, you realize that what Nehemiah did, and John spoke about this last week, that he first started with repentance. He started with the brokenness. He accepted the responsibility of his own people's wickedness, his family's wickedness, and his own wickedness, and started there with a broken, contrite heart. In James chapter 5, verse 16, it says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of what? A righteous man is powerful and effective. Have you ever gone to God with all of your requests and you've never stopped to really reflect on your own inconsistencies or sin in your life? And see, what Nehemiah was doing is he was taking an approach to God, first of all, with a broken, contrite heart. He wanted to be a righteous man when he asked this request of God to grant him success. And so he took the time to get on his knees before God and make that request out of a broken, contrite heart of humility. And so the principle I want you to, to, to write down this morning, if you want a request, we want a request to be effective. Our approach must be without any known sins or subtle manipulations. You ever had somebody come to you and ask you something or ask you for something and you've kind of read between the lines, you think, hmm, I wonder what their agenda is. I wonder what they really want. Because you don't sense a real message of repentance or brokenness or humility. You're sensing more of an entitlement or a manipulative kind of request. Well, well, what was really important for Nehemiah was to come to God with a broken, contrite heart. I mean, he'd been fasting and praying for days over this, and he wanted to make sure that his heart was right before he made that request. And my question to us again, do we have our hearts right when we make those requests before God? When we ask God to do those impossibles, we ask God to change that person's life or ask God for that, 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 that blessing in our lives or whatever it might be, have we come to him with a repentant, broken heart? And wouldn't you be more likely to respond when somebody approaches you that way than if you approach that with the approach of entitlement or I deserve this or I, or I have to have this? So he had a repentant heart, and that was really critical to his approach of granting that success as he went to the king. 
But I want you to notice there's a second area here that I see in this passage where he also had an extremely respectful attitude. If you go back to verse 11, he says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in what? In revering his name. If you go back up a little bit earlier, he says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant. See, Nehemiah knew who he was talking to. He was talking to the great and mighty God, the God of the impossible. Sometimes I think we forget that when we pray and we seek God. You know, we've kind of created this familiarity with God sometimes that that really can kind of take him for granted. That's why it was really important for me to spend some time in communion this morning, that we, we don't take communion for granted, that we just stop for a moment and realize how special and how unique it is for this person named Jesus Christ who came to this earth, Almighty God himself, and gave up his life for you and for me. So what's really important here is that we need to approach with this a respectful attitude, understanding that when we approach God, we're approaching the God of the universe. And sometimes we get so familiar with God that we, we kind of lose that awesomeness, that respect that we need to have for our Lord. But not only did he have respect for his God, I want you to notice his approach to the king. So go down again to verse uh, chapter 2, verse 2. And you notice, he said, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness. And so he said, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. That was an address of respect and honor to the king. And so he came to the king with this attitude of humility and respect, revering the king's human authority, God-given authority that the king had over him. He says it later on again where he says, O king, live forever, when he asks him for the materials and for a letter. You notice here that his approach was with great respect and reverence of the people who he was asking the request from. And you know what's interesting in our culture today? We've lost that, I think. It can be as simple as going into a restaurant and asking a waiter or waitress for us to to give us a glass of water or another another helping of iced tea or whatever it is. We We can create a great matter of respect rather than a matter of entitlement. See, our whole system is messed up in our culture today because we all have this rights perspective. We all have this entitlement perspective, and we just fight and conflict over it rather than respect and revere one another, just like our Congress does right now, right? Okay, well, we won't go to there, okay? Because it's always a system of selfish demands in our society today. And I'm wondering, again, there's the old saying that you can capture more bees with honey. And I'm wondering sometimes if our approach is all wrong when it comes to God and when it comes to our fellow human beings and we ask or make requests of them, that sometimes is a very difficult request. And if we could come with a humble, contrite heart and one with great respect, honoring who they are as a person, maybe, maybe we would be granted with greater respect and response. And this is the way Nehemiah approached his God and approached his king. But there's a third concept here that's really, really important So if we want respect, if we want our request to have a positive response, then we must have an approach of respect. But like I say, there's a third component here that I saw in this passage that really struck me, and it's really, really important. 
And that is thirdly, Nehemiah had relational equity. What do I mean by relational equity? It, basically, what I'm saying here is that he's invested enough time and energy into a relationship where he had maybe some chips to cash, okay? There was a relational equity that was built with his Lord. How do we know that? Well, first of all, in verse 4, there was consistent communication with God. I mean, it says he fasted and prayed, mourned for days. There was this, this relationship that he had built with the Lord, and the Lord knew his sincerity because of the consistency and persistency of his prayers and his time spent with him alone. And it's really, really important for us if we expect God to do things for us and we ask him for these blessings and we make these requests, how critical it is for us to have a, a persistency and a consistency with the Lord so that when it comes time for to ask, he's paying greater attention, wouldn't you? You know, sometimes we just live our lives in our little compartments and then some crisis comes up and we zing one up to God expecting God to respond to us and God's saying, where were you yesterday? Where were you the day before? Where were you the day before that? What's up with that? I guess if I were God, I'd feel that way. Don't you feel that way if you've gone on and you've not really had a, a relationship with somebody and all of a sudden they ask you some difficult question, you're saying, what's up with that? Where were you a week ago? How come you weren't a part of this a while ago? Well, Nehemiah had created enough consistency with the Lord and enough sincerity. You see, the fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Sometimes we, we're not terribly fervent about our prayer life. You know, what's interesting for me is what I've tried to do a lot more in my life over the years is to really pray about things that I'm really burdened for. You know, it's easy to pray about everything, but I've tried to, to boil some of my prayer life down to a lot more of what, am I, what has God really placed in my heart? What am I really burdened about? So that my prayers actually become a, have a greater fervency to them knowing that God knows the sincerity of my heart and maybe perchance he might respond in a greater way. But there was this consistency in Nehemiah. But there's a second th uh, thing that I want you to notice here that's a little bit subtle, but I think it's really important. If you go to verse 4 again in chapter 2, when he approaches the king with his request, it's interesting what happens. He says, what is it you want? Well, zap. I mean, can you imagine, he's going to the king, and he's going to ask this really difficult thing, and all of a sudden he gets an answer and says, well, what do you want? It's like, oh, what do I tell him? What do I say? And so what does he do? He zings one up, right? He says, oh, Lord, you know, oh, Lord, I pray to the God of heaven. What I, what I see here is an important principle that I think we often don't get. Prayer is a really interesting thing. Sometimes we think that prayer is just limited to, you know, an hour on our knees or 15 minutes for this, and we kind of go through that, and we kind of compartmentalize prayer. But isn't prayer all about a relationship? Isn't it all about a dialogue? And so what I see here in Nehemiah's life is that he gets before the king, and in the midst of that tense moment, he zings one up. I love it. It's like he really understands and senses the presence of God in his life from every moment. And I'm wondering how much do we have that dialogue throughout the day to create that relational equity with God, to know his presence, to experience his presence when we're at work, when we're at home, when we're doing various tasks. Do we really sense and know his presence so that we have the freedom to zing one up if we need to in the midst of whatever's going on? 
And so I see this principle here with Nehemiah that he does this later on too, if you'll notice. He, he just has this relationship with God. You know, we oftentimes get kind of trapped into a religion kind of thing with God to where we sort of compartmentalize it. But there was a flowing, it seemed like, with, with, with Nehemiah that, here, that he depicts here that I think is really important for us to see. Do you have that kind of flow with your Lord on a day-to-day basis? Do, do you feel comfortable in just saying, oh, Lord, help me? You know, or I, I know I've said this millions of times. It seems like when I've been in the midst of witnessing to somebody and sharing my faith with somebody, saying, Lord, help me. You know, give me an answer. Help me with this. And it's just so great to be able to have those kinds of dialogues with the Lord from day to day, moment by moment, minute by minute. So he practiced the presence and dependence on God. You know, what's really important to me, over the years, prayer has always been an enigma for me. I, I don't know about you. And I confess that some days I feel like, you know, God, why should I pray? You know, I mean, you know what I need. You know what the answer is going to be. You've got it all under control, so why bother? I've been recently reading a book, and one of the interesting things about this book on prayer that he says is that prayer demonstrates dependence. And I like that. Prayer demonstrates dependence. You see, prayer is a way that we express our dependence on God. And if we don't pray, we're basically saying, I don't need you, God. And so prayer is really a powerful way for us to demonstrate our dependence upon God. So my whole attitude has kind of shifted a lot more in prayer, that it's not getting what I want. It's just saying, God, I'm just dependent on you. I can't do this without you, and I need you. So that's just a thought I want to throw in there. So he practiced the presence and dependence upon God. There's a third way that he developed relational equity. In the end of chapter 1, this little comment that he said at the end, I was cupbearer to the king. Now that's an important statement that he made. Reason being is the cupbearer was the one who protected the king from assassination. He was like the king's bodyguard. He would be the taster of that wine to make sure that there wasn't any poison in the drink to kill him. And so he had to be an extremely trustworthy, reliable, creditable person. And and so when you think about Nehemiah here being a Jew and being one of the most trusted men in the kingdom, you have an amazing reputation here that's on the line of a guy that's totally trustworthy and reliable. And see, when we have relational equity, we've got to be able to demonstrate long-term reliability and trust. We've got to be able to do that. And here was a a guy who had spent perhaps years in the king's court tasting that wine to make sure that the king was protected. And so you can see here, when he goes to the king and asks for a leave of absence, he's, he's got a big deal going on here. I mean, the king was was probably thinking, well, who am I going to get that I can trust as much as you to replace you for this period of time? Because he had developed a reputation of reliability and trust. And my question to you is, when you go to God or when you go to other people in your life who you really are making requests of, have you established a reputation of reliability and trust? When your kids come to you as a parent and they've not been able, been responsible and they've made excuses and not done things consistently and they make this big request, what do you say? Well, you haven't demonstrated to me that you can be trusted. 
Well, the same thing holds true, I think, when we make requests to God and to other people, that we've demonstrated somehow this reliability and trust. Here's a fourth concept that I think is a a real important part of relational equity. In chapter 2, verse 2, there's something fascinating here that I picked up. He walks into the court, the court, and he appears in front of the king. He doesn't say a word, right? What happens? Why do your, does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can only be nothing but sadness of the heart. He didn't have to say a word. There was such a relationship between him and the king that immediately when he walks in, he's got this countenance apparently on his face that the king picked up that he knew something's bugging you, man. What's up? Wouldn't it be great to have a relationship with people in your life and with God that you don't even have to say anything and yet there's this connection of authenticity and transparency that you've conveyed in your life See, that's, that's about relational equity. You know, if we, if we guard ourselves and we, we don't allow ourselves to be made vulnerable at all in our life and we're not willing to be open and transparent, how, how are people going to trust us and rely upon us? And so here's, a, here's an occasion where he didn't have to say a word. He didn't have to say a word. They just picked it up. Their radar picked up his countenance. And I'm wondering, do you have those kinds of relationships where people see and know you so well and they, they sense your, your spirit and when things aren't going well that they can come alongside you and you can be able to make those kinds of interchanges and, and requests? So that's the way Nehemiah pulled it off in his approach. He didn't hide his feelings. He didn't fake it till he made it. He didn't put on a mask. He wasn't going to hide his agenda. It was written all over his face. But there's one more component that I see here in terms of his relational equity. Sometimes if you've noticed when people ask you for something, they they really don't come to you with a plan, right? They just ask you, um, you know, have you ever had your kids come to you uh, when you, when your kids were 16 or 17? Hey, can I have the car? Yeah, well, yeah, what for? Well, I don't know. I just want to, you know, I just need the car. Well, that doesn't work very well, does it? But here's the situation. He goes to the king, and then the king with the queen sitting beside him, he says, first of all, how long will your journey take? So Nehemiah apparently had to have in the back of his mind how long he thought it would take in order to get the job done to build those walls. Now think about this, 142 years and he had a plan. Now, this is fascinating because when you read about it later, you realize that the walls were actually built in 52 days. That's amazing. But what's really interesting about it, he goes to the king and he says, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates? Why? Because he knew ahead of time that he was going to have some opposition. He had been planning and thinking about this request for quite a while. This wasn't just a spur-of-the-moment thing, right? He'd been praying, fasting, thinking, and planning. Sometimes when we don't approach people with a plan, it's really hard for them to respond. He put a deadline on it. What's interesting, though, he did say he was going to build his own residence in Jerusalem, which was kind of maybe a little trigger. 
But the point is, is that he had a plan. He knew that there was going to be opposition, and he also needed materials. I mean, he had apparently already called Lowe's and Home Depot and got an estimate on what it was going to cost and what kind of materials he needed. Just want to make sure you're awake this morning. So he goes to them and he says, look, I need to have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest. So he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel. I mean, basically, he had almost a blueprint in his mind of what he needed in order to accomplish the task. And I love that about Nehemiah. He was thinking ahead, he was planning ahead, and he was prepared that when the opportunity came to make that request, he had all his ducks in a row. And it's really important when we approach people with requests that we really have our ducks in a row and have a plan, if you will, because it really helps them understand, is there a time essence? Is there a time limit on it? Let's put a set time together. What are your plans? What are you thinking? It just gives a comfortability to that person when they're able to respond to your request. So principle number three is this. Requests are more likely to be granted when relational equity is established. And what's really great is the gracious God had his hand in Nehemiah and his request was not only granted by God, but by the king. As you think about this particular message this morning, I guess the question that I would ask you, is there something that you've been asking God or somebody that you love and respect for some type of request? And it's just not happening. It's just hasn't, God hasn't seemed to respond yet. And it's been frustrating to you. It's been tough for you. And perhaps maybe, maybe your approach is bad. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, we don't often know what God's thinking or what God wants to do in our lives, but maybe we haven't approached God in a way that he is because he's not responding. And, and perhaps it is because we haven't taken the time to examine our own hearts. I mean, when you look at Nehemiah, he not only uh, confessed his own personal sin, he confessed the sin of his family, he confessed the sin of his, his nation. I mean, he took it all on himself, and he was broken and contrite and fervent when he went to God with his request. And I'm wondering if maybe that's an issue for you. I don't, I don't know, but is it possible that maybe that's why God hasn't responded yet? You see, the point I want to make to you as I started this morning is, is that we expect God to do the impossible for us, amen? I mean, that's what God is. God can, is the God of the impossible. But I think God does want us to do the possible. And I'm not sitting here saying that we should be in the name it and claim it category and positive confession and all of that. What I am saying is, is that I'm wondering if God wants to do more in our lives, if we just establish a greater a repentant heart, a respectful attitude and relational equity. That's all I'm saying. You know, what's fascinating to me is that when I studied this, I was thinking back on that scripture where it says, delight yourself in the Lord, right? And he'll give you the desires of your heart. And, um, and I was thinking, how could I never, ever be disappointed with God's answers? What if God says no? What if God's not responding? And I've, I've, I've worked that whole thing of, of my approach and relational equity and all that stuff. What if God's still not answering? Well, it goes back again to delighting in the Lord. 
And so I've been thinking about that all week. And how do I express that to you guys this morning? But all I can say is this. If I really delight in the Lord, then my desires are his desires, right? And so if things don't go the way we want it, we need to rejoice in the fact that I'm really, my ultimate desire is you, what you want, Lord, and apparently this is what you want, so I'm going to try to delight in that. And so therefore you have answered my prayer. Does that make sense? So I'm thinking here this morning, maybe there's somebody here this morning that you've been praying a long time about something. And you're just wondering, God, where, where are you at in this, you know? And, or maybe you've asked your husband or your kids or somebody in your life, your boss or whatever. And, or maybe you're about to make a request and you're scared about it. You're, you're a little bit troubled to say, ah, do I really go there? Do I, well, how do I deal with this? Well, I hope these three principles that we talked about this morning will be helpful to you as you think about that next step in your life. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you this morning for this illustration again of a man who is an incredibly godly leader. He's such a, a model to all of us as to how to really approach you. God, um, I just help us not to take you for granted. When, when we come before you in prayer, God, help us to know that we're coming before a holy, righteous God who is the God of the universe, who's willing to listen to us. And so, Lord, don't help us to, with our approach when we make those requests to you. God, I, I pray that each one of us would be convicted a little bit this morning about having greater relational equity with you. That we would just really enjoy those moments with you where we've been transparent and vulnerable and reliable and trustworthy so that we can come with you boldly, Lord, and ask you for things and trust that your answers will be able to delight in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.